0: You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 651. Do research, feed your talent. Research not only wins the war on cliché, it is the key to victory over fear and its cousin, depression. Robert McKee broadcasting from the back alley in hollywood it's the indie film hustle podcast where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz and here's your host alex ferrari welcome welcome to another episode of the indie film Hustle podcast i am your humble host alex ferrari have you ever wanted to learn from a hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an oscar winner well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valjuras, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma Louise, and Oscar-winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Today's show is also sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker Ebook and of course audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's film B-I-Z, Today's guest is Chris Vanderkay, and he is the writer of the new book. Spoiler alert: The Badass Book of Movie Plots, and he sits down with his co-authors to break down 38 Main Street movie genres like teen sex comedy, buddy action comedy, film noir, detective thriller, alien invasion thriller, and just a ton more. And the book is not written as like your standard uh, screenwriting book. He does everything through illustrations. And it's not only very educational, but extremely entertaining and very hilarious to look at. Because when you start looking at all of these cliches, it really does make you think about how you're writing because sometimes we fall into the vicious pit that is cliche in all of our writing. And this kind of really points a spotlight on specific genres. So if you're writing a buddy action comedy, probably good to read what these cliches are and maybe how to avoid them, how to twist them, how to make them a little bit you know more unique to you and your story. It just really is a wonderful a resource for screenwriters and filmmakers in general. So, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Vanderkay. I'd like to welcome to the show, Chris Vanderkay. Man, how are you, sir? Not too bad. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Alex. I oh, appreciate it. Right. Thank you for thank you for being on the show, man. Uh, you have a, a really cool uh, idea for a book, and uh, as I, and it's it's really beautifully laid out. Can you tell the audience what the name of your book is? Yeah, it's called Spoiler Alert colon, uh, the badass book of movie plots.
1: And, um, if I had to sort of encapsulate it, I guess I would say that it's sort of an infographic style template, uh, that walks you through the tropes and the cliches and the, the framework of a lot of well-known sort of popular Hollywood genres.
0: Now, in, in the book, you talk about the, the, the good bad film. Uh, can you, can you give me your definition of a good, bad film? Yeah, the difference. I guess the difference
1: between a bad film and a good bad film is that um, both of them might not be great movies, but uh, the ones that are good bad films are still enjoyable, mm-hmm. even if they're not particularly uh, excellent. That we wouldn't necessarily re- necessarily reward them with awards or anything like that. But they're still fun to watch. We we kind of call them comfort food movies. You know, you kind of go in knowing what you're going to expect, and as long as they don't just. Um, Horribly insult you, or if they do insult you, it's it's um, fun and they're aware of it. Then there can be a fun to it. Um, We uh, Kathleen and myself and Stephen Kathleen Fernandez and Stephen Espinosa, my co-writers, we're big fans of horror films, and an awful lot of horror films are what you would consider comfort food movies. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not going to win any awards, but they're they're fun, and even if they are sometimes riddled with cliches, they're they're still a blast to have. And so the reason we wrote this book is it's kind of. Uh, lovingly pointing those out and having fun with them, but at the same time, hopefully also being instructive in a sort of a, I don't want to say like in a negative instructive way, but in a way that we're saying, watch out for these traps. It's easy to fall into these. You know, take an extra, you know, take an extra pass at your story and see if there's a way for you to avoid some of the pitfalls
0: that a lot of these movies have fallen into. So, as far as good, bad movies are concerned, I mean, my favorite of all time is The Room. Uh, cause it is, I mean, it is as perfect of a bad film as you can get. And I always, I always tell people like a good bad film is it's, if you try to make a, b- a bad film, like, like a cult favorite, like a, you know, and I've seen those movies that they try to do something like they know they have the intention of making a bad movie kind of like Sharknado, which kind of, mm-hmm. which kind of took its own, that just, I mean, you can't really beat. Tornadoes and sharks. I mean, I mean, it's such a bad concept that it was, they knew exactly, they were self aware. The best good bad movies are the ones that are not self aware, that authentically feel like they were creating cinema. And The Room is the pure definition of that. For sure. I mean, one of the things we always talk about when we talk about these kinds of movies
1: is that there needs to be some level of sincerity mm-hmm. to the badness in order for us to be able to enjoy it. Because when you are cynically making a bad movie in some ways, especially to to you and to me and to other filmmakers, it feels insulting because it's mm-hmm. like there are a lot of people out there trying to make good movies. Mm-hmm. So when you're taking up m- money and time and resources and you're intentionally making something that you think is a laugh or throwaway, uh, it, it – it feels kind of hostile to people who are working so hard to try and make it in this industry. But when you get a sincere filmmaker who was trying and just, it's, there's something about the way that they made the things. There's there's a, a humorous ineptness sometimes that, but, um, but but it's never cynical. They were really trying and they really love movies too. And there's something endearing about that.
0: That's what, like one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, filmmaking movies of all time is Ed Wood because you watch Ed Wood, which is not a it's not a bad movie. It's a movie about Ed Wood, who was considered one of the worst directors of all time. Mm -hmm. But the sincerity, the love, the cluelessness that he had in the filmmaking, the way he made his films is what makes Plan 9 from Outer Space so pleasurable to watch because you watch that and you're like, this can't, like the guy took two styrofoam plates, spray painted them and put them on a string and expected us to believe that that was a spaceship. Like, but he wholeheartedly did. Like it was amazing. Yeah, well and it's funny because one of the things he
1: said in the in the movie that I think is really funny is he said if if you're noticing little things like that then you you miss the point, right? You miss the <laughs> point of the story that I'm telling. And that seems funny, but then at the same time I was literally just watching a documentary yesterday or the day before where George Miller's cinematographer on mm-hmm. Fury Road was talking about how They shot on very different days weather-wise, and the cinematographer kept saying, we can't shoot this to match with what we just did. It looks completely different. And George Miller kept saying, if people are noticing the sky, I've already failed as a filmmaker. So when you look at like Ed Wood (laughs) doing Plan 9 and then George Miller doing Fury Road, it's like it's not all that different an ethos that they're talking
0: about. It's not that different, but yet it's miles apart. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, I know. Of course. Right. You know, it's like, yeah. like execution I execution is everything, right? Yeah, my last my last film that I directed, there were scenes where there was there was no spit, there was no snow on the ground, and then there was snow on the ground. And not one person has ever called me on it because you kind of just roll with it because the story moves along. Um, but it's also not an element that's strict like the sky and the snow. Are not things in your face. They're background right. elements where a spaceship is where the camera is looking at.
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> so, or, or a um, an orthodontist that's a foot and a half taller than your lead actor who died. And so you have him walk around with a cape in front of his face the rest <laughs> of the film.
0: <laughs> it's just anyone listening, you have to watch Ed Wood, uh, the, Room, oh, yeah. the Room and the documentary – the best worst movie ever made uh, about Troll 2, which personally I can't watch Troll 2 because I feel Troll 2 sucked. I, I think I died a little bit after I watched that movie. Um, but the documentary about the making of the movie and the fandom after it is, is brilliant. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah. But I'm sorry, we went off on a tangent there because I don't get to talk about good bad movies very often. But so you you really break down, you know, from what I saw, you really break down uh, a good amount of plots. But there's always so is there a number of plots that you feel that's like this is the good core plots, and then you could obviously, you know, mix them in left and right all over the place.
1: Well, when we originally did, uh, when we originally pitched the book, it was actually going to be 50 genres that we were going to cover and we brainstormed out, God, almost a hundred, I think total. Um, and what we realized was that there were certain ones that overlapped on each other a tiny bit. And so we would start to eliminate the ones that were going to be a little too close to each other. And once we started doing that, you know, there's, there's certain, uh, horror subgenres that will, will touch on each other a little bit. And so we were like, well, we don't. Which one is going to be the most fun of the two of these to do? What has the most uh the cliches that are easier to exaggerate or to get jokes out of because we want the book to be entertaining at the same time that it's you know helping someone to learn about the structure of a, a story but and so we ultimately settled on on thirty eight out of the fifty that we constructed uh, and for you know page count and cost count issues uh, were the other reasons that we decided on that but the thirty eight that we came up with were the ones that we thought for volume one of a book like this and hopefully. Fingers crossed we'll have a second volume depending on how well this sells. But for the first volume, the goal was pick the big ones. These are the ones that hopefully everyone will recognize at least a few tropes from every one of these movies because they've seen at least a handful of these movies. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of our guiding light for the first book was even if you haven't seen a bunch of heist movies – it's well enough known culturally that you'll recognize some of these cliches.
0: Yeah. And and I find that a lot of first time screenwriters and myself included, when I was starting to write, um, I would fall into the, as Robert McKee says, the dreaded, um, the dreaded cliche, the dreaded dialogue cliche or story plot cliches. And you are pointing out every one of these cliches in these genres. So it's a very valuable book to have on the shelf just to, kind of skim through maybe maybe you're writing the cliche and you don't even think you're writing the cliche and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, is this a cliche? you like you might not even be aware of it because it's something that you might like, no one's ever done this before. I'm like, no, everyone in this genre has done this before. Um, which is which is really interesting. And I think it is one of the I mean, I've read a lot of scripts over my in my years. and the biggest problem is cliche dialogue, cliche story plots. Um, cliche characters, especially in every single one of these genres. So like when Lethal Weapon came out, um, every everybody was a buddy, the buddy cop movie, you know, it was mm-hmm. like, it, it was like, uh, I think 48 Hours came out first. I think if I'm not mistaken, 48 Hours came out before Lethal Weapon. It was like 85. Yeah. Um, it, and that was kind of, I don't know if that was the birth of the buddy cop movie, but it was that kind of comedic, I'd never seen anything like that right. before. Yeah, I mean, so far as I
1: know, Walter Hill is generally credited with sort of creating the buddy cop. Not that there haven't been movies with two characters before, mm-hmm. but that specific dynamic of the, um, of the either the the straight laced cop and, and the wild card or the the cop and the criminal partnering mm-hmm. up. That is pretty much owed to Walter Hill in, in large part. Not that it's never been done before, but he really codified it so that it was clear what the elements of that subgenre were going to be moving forward.
0: Yeah, and then Shane Black took it to a whole other place with right. Lethal Weapon, and then and it just kept going. And then you know, Red Heat, I remember Red Heat came out a little while after that um, mm-hmm. with Arnold and James Belushi. And and then the Buddy Cop movie was like a trope of the 80s. Like it's, You still see it nowadays, but not as much as you did in the 80s and uh, early 90s.
1: Yeah, it's, it's kind of moved into TV now. TV yeah. is kind of the place where you have the. the uh, it, it's almost sort of like leaned into that the first iteration was the, uh, the straight laced one in the wild card. And now there's sort of the X Files dynamic, which is the believer skeptic dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of become the new trope for the two person team of investigators.
0: Right so yeah in the the CSI style worlds or or the uh, SVU style worlds right. out there they have those kind of dynamics I still like the buddy cop movie I mean it's it's a, a good buddy cop movie is never can never oh, go for bad sure.
1: Was uh, the nice guys another one from Shane Black? You know, thirty years removed from its, uh, uh you know, probably it's it, the era it would have done great in, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, just a few years ago. And again, really, really fun. It, it's so it's such a simple construction, but if well executed, can be so fun and, uh, and
0: super entertaining. And it didn't do as well as it should have. I mean, no. it, it's just a different time. This the, this time is not for that kind of film as much anymore, unfortunately. But I think you're right. TV is the place for genres like that. And I think writers in general understanding these tropes. That's why I think your book is so valuable is because you like you just don't analyze you generally you not you but like writers don't go into a genre and start analyzing the the bad stuff, the the tropes, the mm-hmm. the cliches. You don't do that, but you have this like little guy that can kinda go in there. By the way, guys, I make no money by promoting this. I just think it's a cool idea. Um because I'm like, oh this is this is kind of sp-. and the way you did it with the infographic kind of ways even even so much cooler because you're just like I looked at I was looking at it. I was like, that's that's just kind of cool <laughs> the way you laid it <laughs> like, all out.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, one, one of our goals was there are filmmakers who do what you're talking about, which is um, they work in film and television. Ryan Johnson is the first one I think of. But then Jay Michael Straczynski and um, and yeah. uh, why can't I think of his name who created Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Joss uh, just Witten Josh. just win. yeah, they both studied very strongly the genres that they worked in specifically so they could figure out how do I create something that seems like it's heading in the direction would expect. So that when I do something completely different, it totally catches you off guard. So in a way they were very smart because instead of just trying to do something different, they knew what was already expected and sort of headed in that direction. So that when they finally do take that surprise left-hand turn, it's that much more powerful because you'd already been roped into thinking you were going down a specific path, much like Ryan Johnson does in Knives Out.
0: Right, exactly, and the uh, which was so great. I love *Knives Out*. But if let's analyze *Buffy* for a second, which you know I love. I I I saw *Buffy* in the theater. I'm a little older, so I I remember seeing *Buffy* when they came out with Luke Perry and *Christy* *Christy* *Swanson*. Um, and then when it really took off, when he had complete creative control with the show, Mm -hmm. but he I saw many interviews with him about that genre, which is like oh, the vampire slayer. Is usually Van Helsing. It's usually some big muscular dude fighting Dracula or fighting you know these big things. And he's like, what if it's the victim that usually they're sa- being saved from? How about if the victim is the slayer? Which is and he's like, and then made it so more ridiculous calling her Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which in general is just a weird, wonderful name. And then it just created this whole um, this whole world. And he did he turned it on its head. And I think good. Uh, good creative writers can turn a whole genre on its head. I mean, Tarantino's made a career out of that. Yeah. Um And, and Josh as well.
1: Well, and, and uh, Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard teamed up to do it again with the cabin in the woods. That's a yeah. fantastic example of a way that you take, uh, not just invert the tropes, but actually use the tropes as the central premise of the film in sort of a meta way, like really pointing out that they're there to the degree that actually in the movie, A lot of those characters don't fall into the tropes, but they're actually being forced into them by external circumstances. And so that's a really clever way of pointing out the problem with these tropes and these cliches, these things we come to
0: expect. So two two examples I can think of right in the horror genre that – I think one of the first guys to do it was Hitchcock with Psycho. Um, Mm -hmm. He completely took that genre of film and – Completely changed it, killing off his, sorry, spoiler alert, guys. Um, um, so I think we should be safe by now. I mean, if it's, it's 70 years, what is it, 60, 70, 60 yeah. years, it's 60 years ago, guys. If you haven't seen it, it's not on me. Um, by killing off your main, your main movie star within the first 20 minutes, and then your audience is like, who, who, who's, who do I follow? Who's the protagonist? Yeah. That was great. And then Wes Craven did it again and scream which was an homage to what Hitchcock did with Drew Barrymore. I mean, and, and West did it with Drew Barrymore. Uh, again, so you, the audience had no idea. And that was another scream completely flipped all the horror tropes upside down.
1: Yeah. Well, because that was the first time that people in a horror movie had ever seen a horror movie. And in a <laughs> right. way, they were armed with the weapons that they needed to survive. And that's sort of the humor of the film is in watching some of them figure it out and some of them not.
0: And the ones who didn't um, obviously ended up where they end up, <laughs> <yeah>. dead.
1: <laughs> well, it's You mentioned Tarantino a couple of minutes ago in the way that he reinvents genres, and I think it's interesting. You can draw a direct parallel between the original Psycho and From Dusk Till Dawn because they both do the same thing, which is they start as a crime film and then they become a horror film at the halfway point. Um, yeah, It's a crime film about her stealing money and is she going to get away with it? until he kills her and then from Dust till dawn it's are these guys gonna rob the bank and get to mexico safely and then at the halfway point it becomes a vampire film right
0: so i i want i want to talk to you about this because this is this is a pet peeve of mine i'm a huge robert rodriguez fan i'm a huge tarantino fan I, I i i completely understand what you're saying i feel that psycho did it right and i don't know why he did it right why that worked or i feel that from Dust till dawn did not work in many ways and robert and Twitten both are they've come out said it you know, like we made two movies. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. There was not even a sense of vampire anywhere, anywhere in the world of the, of the heist film. So when it came out, it literally comes out of left field. It, it just comes... Like and, and I knew, we were all knew what was going to happen, but a lot of people were like, this just felt, it felt weird. Where in Psycho, it doesn't feel weird, maybe because it kind of fit, I mean, everyone knew it was called Psycho, so there was going to be someone who died. So I guess people were kind of waiting for something to happen. It was shocking the way he did it. But From Dusk Till Dawn... I don't, I don't know, and and I'm, I'm, not, I don't know if you, if you're the first to ever hear this an, an, an uh, analysis of From Dust Till Dawn, but I when I was watching it, which I'm a fan of the movie, I do like the movie, but it literally just felt like it came out of left field. And I know a lot of people were turned off by it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I wasn't. I enjoy. I mean, I'm one of those people that I would rather a big swing and a miss in a film that's an interesting try, yes. than a success at doing okay. Mm-hmm. So w- when a movie, even if a movie is not super successful at something, if they tried it. I'm I'm happy that they tried something wild and different. I do think one thing that might be the difference between Psycho and From dust Till Dawn, and I think because you and I are similar ages, that the difference is that there was a psychic awareness in the world about Psycho by the time we even became aware of it, uh, whereas From Dust Till Dawn was birthed within our lifetime, right? right? So I do think that there is to some degree a level of us, whether we're doing it consciously or not, r- recognizing that um, generations have already accepted this as – the thing that it is, right? Whereas from Dust Till Dawn, we were the ones that are actually making that decision, you know, when it was happening in the moment. So I actually think uh, I, I would have been more excited had there been no mention of vampires in the, in the f- trailers in the same way that there was no mention of the murder in Psycho. So that I did go in thinking that it was a, a Quentin Tarantino crime drama and then have the rug pulled out from under me. The thing that I thought was kind of sad was that you did know it was coming,
0: yeah, um, I, I would agree I, with that. That I would probably would that. have upset more people, but... No, I would I would agree with that, and I always find it fascinating, because that was the time right after... That was such a very unique time in history, because Robert had just finished this Desperado, which was a big hit, and Pulp Fiction had just came out. So basically, the studio said, hey guys, what do you want to do? And Tarantino's like, we're not going to get a chance to do this again, let's just do From dust Till Dawn, and they just had carte blanche to do whatever the hell they wanted. And and you could kind of tell like the first part of the movie is more Tarantino and the second part of the movie is more Rodriguez.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, and I it's funny. You said they have carte blanche, which I think is mostly true. But the one thing they didn't have control over is actually the marketing, which is right. – I, I believe Tarantino even said that when he originally – when they came up with the idea – he wanted to only market the first half of the film. He did want it to be a surprise. But I think uh, in the day, especially you know nowadays, maybe you could do a stunt like that. But in the mid-90s, you're spending a lot of money to put a film out in theaters. It's risky. And these guys have been big hits, but within the ind- indie industry – you know, they're going to try and market the old fashioned way. You know, they're going to tell you everything that there is to know about this film. Yeah. And so I, I would be curious to know, you know, what the thought experiment would be of how the film would have been received if everybody went in not knowing that it became right. a supernatural horror film at the halfway point.
0: And, and to be fair, I mean, it did spawn two sequels and a show on El Rey. So it, it's yeah. done okay. I mean, it's, it's not that it's not done well, it's done okay uh, without any, without any question. So I wanted to kind of go over some of the tropes of certain genres. I kind of saw the list of, genre, of of genres and I want to hear some of these and they're, and they're not the usual ones but the first one obviously is the slasher film. So the slasher film which was birthed in the in the late 70s yeah, because when Halloween is the is the is the birth of the slasher film right? Yeah, well there's you know depending Psycho on how, in, psycho the weeds
1: you want to get into yes, yeah psycho. you could say psycho you could say um uh bay of Tex- blood by baba and the, then I mean even Texas chainsaw a lot of people Texas That's the same and I think the big dispute is that actually people think Black Christmas is really the birthplace more than Halloween because it came out was it a year or two earlier yeah, and it has the point of view killings and the you know the uh, the girls in the house and so um well Halloween gets the credit because it is a world class film and it is like unbelievably good at creating tension. there were a few films that were sort of proto slashers around before that one really sort of coined the phrase
0: uh, uh, real quick on a side note this is just some useless uh trivia did you know that um John Carpenter was going to USC or had just graduated from USC film school at the time and used some of USC's um, film equipment to make Halloween. Then USC sued John Carpenter for the because it was a huge hit. They wanted money. And John Carpenter never forgave them for that. That was because, you know, can you imagine like a student all of a sudden? It was a monster hit. I mean, it was a oh, mon- yeah. it was a monster hit. But that's just a little little ridiculous, uh, useless trivia.
1: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me because he made, um, he made dark star, mm-hmm. uh, at school. So obviously he still had the connections, but yeah, I mean, Halloween, I think was the biggest independent film until was it either clerks or Blair, which came along. I mean, so for uh, years
0: I would, I would say, I, I actually know the, the answer to that. It was the teenage mutant Ninja turtles released in 1989, which made 120 million domestically wow. for a eight, $9 million budget at that point. Yeah. Uh, and it was in 19, whatever, 91, it came
1: yeah. out or it, it, that's a good, that's a good long run. It's 12 year run that it was the most successful independent oh, film yeah. released. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Without question. Now, all right, so what are some of the tropes of the slasher film? So, you know, so we can kind of go into it. Oh, for sure. I mean, obviously the, one of the biggest ones is that there almost always
1: is an opening set piece that not only um, that we see characters die, so that we know what the stakes are, but also usually we're seeing some sort of origin of the slasher. Um, oftentimes it'll be something that happened in the slasher's childhood, or some person that was connected to the character that will eventually be revealed as the slasher. So that later in the story we get the big reveal of, oh, it's the sister of, or the child of, or this the mother, or the mother of, or yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 Uh, so that's a big piece, is right, that opening set piece. Um, there's the the one we always laugh about, which is that there's always a scene where somebody is uh playing strip poker or skinny dipping or some other way in which you can make only the female cast member take off their clothes and the the guy maybe gets naked but it's always hidden by strategic shrubbery right Mm -hmm. um and then and and there's a few of them you know there's the cat in the closet right i mean that how many times has that been done the the noise that someone hears and goes to investigate by themselves um the funny thing is is we only had room for six tropes per act the way that there's so many tropes in a, especially in a slasher film. We could have filled, we could have filled a whole book with the tropes of the slasher film, but we ended up with about 18 plus our splash page. Um, Jeez! And then of course at the end, the fake, the fake out death. That's a big one,
0: right? Oh, when they come, come back to life. When they, yeah, when they yeah. come back. Yeah.
1: Yeah, in Halloween it was just, she sat down on the floor with her back to him and he sat up slowly oh. and you know uh or, or you know Jason jumping through the window after we think he's already expired or coming up out of the lake or whatever you know whatever that final jolt moment is which all of them are really sort of playing off of um well Halloween and then Friday the 13th was sort of ripping off the end of Carrie and mm-hmm. so that's kind of where that tradition
0: comes from. Yeah, when Carrie's hand comes out of the right. uh, of the grave uh back there. Yeah, that was 76 if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, that yeah, was yeah, that was uh, that was another one. Um I sorry, right, let's do another one. This one I I'm actually curious about the Creepy Kid movie. Yeah. That's so not that's, a gen- that's not a genre that's abused as much. No,
1: not so much. It's interesting because a lot of these genres are cyclical, right? They'll be super popular for a short time and then they'll vanish. And they'll be gone for a while and then something resuscitates them. I mean, we were just talking about Knives Out. When was the last time we saw like a big budget of uh, star studded murder mystery, you know, yeah. like one of those manor home stories like Clue? It had been years. And then this one comes out. And I think the same thing is true of the Creepy Kid movie because they were big in like the 50s and the 60s. And I think a lot of that had to do with sort of the a symbolic struggle of the the breaking of the home, right? Because of the uh, the war uh, effort and then fathers coming home damaged and then, you know, divorce becoming a thing in, in American culture. And so I think a lot of that was speaking to that. But then they did start to pop up again in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, films like The Good Son and things like that. And then I do think we had a couple of years back, there was a, a, was a short time where we we're getting a chunk of them again. We got uh, Orphan, which was pretty yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, and then I think Vera Farmiga was in that. And I think she was in one other one too, maybe with Sam Rockwell where they were
0: parents. Um, yeah, oh God, what was that movie? Um, jo-
1: yeah. Joshua, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. But and then every once in a while you'll just get like a, a, a sort of a small batch of them sort of, popping back up and for whatever weird reason. That, that's the way that the systems work, you know, where we're cyclical and then suddenly this thing sort of organically just resurfaces.
0: And that's another, that's a genre that isn't, like I said, is not a genre we see very often. So that is something that could make your story as a screenwriter pop out a little bit. Because if you make a slasher film, you know, it, it, there's a million of those and, and they're not as popular anymore. Slasher films are not as popular anymore unless you make a self-aware 80s slasher style Film, which is something that a lot of filmmakers do now, to pay homage to the '80s um, right. slasher films. But the creepy kids genre is not—it's not done very often. So, if everyone listening out there, if you're making a horror movie, a creepy kid—you know—a creepy kid ghost story would probably not be a bad thing to do. Yeah,
1: for sure. And one of the things that's good about the creepy kid genre is that it just has sort of built-in creepiness. Because okay. if you cast the right child, oh. a lot of your work is done for you. You know.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, yeah. Well, like uh, Sixth Sense, which was like a twist on the creepy kid movie because he he wasn't the bad guy, but he was still kind of creepy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, you go back and forth for the first act of that movie about what's what's this kid's deal. Oh, exactly. So what are some of the tropes of that of that genre? Uh, so one of the one of the big tropes that comes up is oftentimes it's a, a childless couple, right, is going to be part of the center because they're going to be bringing a child into their life. Right. Either we meet them before they've had their own kid and then they have a kid, a la Rosemary's Baby, or uh, like um, – or I guess The Omen too, But then you have other movies where you're adopting a child, right? You're bringing a child that didn't uh, – that, that is not your child and you're adopting them, bringing them into your life and then realizing that because you didn't raise them, there are secrets that this child has that you didn't know about. Um but it's almost always that there's some sort of secret about your child, right? In Rosemary's Baby, is that it was the son of Satan in the omen, same deal. Um, but in in Orphan, actually, I don't want to spoil Orphan, so I won't say what the twist yeah. is in that one because it's mm-hmm. pretty fun. Mm-hmm. But it's almost always there's some sort of secret revelation we don't know, and when we find that out, um, you know, it hits the fan. Um, It's either that or the other cliche sometimes is that one of the parents seems to know that something is going on with their kid, but nobody else believes them because it's just an innocent little child. Right. (laughs) And so there's that element of the like, oh, you know, Susan couldn't possibly be doing that. There might be something wrong with you, dear. Right. (laughs) And almost always it's the mom. Right. Because we're gaslighting the mother for having any question about being a loving mother. You know, that's where that sort of 50s, 60s ideal comes in.
0: And there was that movie that came out a few years ago which was the a combination of the creepy kid superhero genre. What was the name of that one? Yeah, uh Brightburn. Brightburn. Yeah, that was like when I yeah. saw the trailer I was like that's a pretty good mashup. Yeah, for sure. I mean if what if Superman was a sociopath? What what would happen to all? <laughs> as this? a kid, as a kid. Yeah. yeah. It was like that, that's insane. Um yeah, and then and, and we could talk a little bit about that because I think one of the ways that you can create new twists on these these older genres um is to combine them, you know, like to combine like obviously scream added a level a high level of comedy and self-awareness to a horror film, essentially. And it is a fairly bloody, brutal horror film, but there's a lot of laughs in that movie.
1: For sure. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like oftentimes horror is the genre where the most experimentation gets done and then it just sort of filters out eventually into other Arenas, And I think it's because you're allowed to get away with a lot more in horror. Mm-hmm. But definitely – I mean one of the things we've always talked about – I've been a screenwriting professor for a few years and even before that when I was just a writer, um, I would always talk to people about the idea of the power of crossing genre means – you had expectations, but now that you've joined those expectations with an arena that has other expectations, you've now created a circumstance where your audience doesn't know which set of expectations to look for. And that's powerful because it means now you have the element of surprise back in a way that you didn't if you were just working in the one.
0: Right. So it's like the comedy the comedy buddy cop movie versus the a little bit more serious buddy cop movie with some comedic elements. So like Lethal Weapon arguably has some funny scenes in it, but it's pretty dark. I mean, you meet Martin Riggs, and he's got a gun to his mouth. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a fairly dark film. But then you got Forty Eight Hours, which is a straight up comedy with action elements in it. With that, yeah. yeah. And I think the genre obviously goes uh, – it's, it's flexible. Most genres
1: tend to be kind of flexible about mm-hmm. what you can – and so you'll have ones that go to the more dramatic or the more serious or the more action-oriented or the more comedic. Um, and I, I think that's one of the great things about genre is the elasticity. Like how far can you take the framework of this one kind of thing that we've already codified? How far can you stretch that before it snaps, you know, before it becomes another thing? Like I used to joke about the problem with drama is it's the most – Uh, recessive genre. Right. If you put enough jokes in a drama, it's a comedy drama goes away. Right. You put a time machine in a drama it becomes a science fiction film drama goes away. So this is this running joke that like drama is the least interesting genre to work in because it's so easy to turn it into something else by just adding one thing, you know?
0: Right. So, yeah, I mean, back to the future is a a sci-fi. I, it's, it's funny. I wouldn't call it a comedy, but it is funny and, and it's heartfelt and there's, there's, a, there's drama in it. And, but it's a, sci, it's a sci-fi film. It's a sci, well, well, what, how would you yeah, genre I mean, that? What kind I of would,
1: genre? For sure, it's science fiction. But if I had to stick it in another genre, I would say it's the coming-of-age comedy for sure. And it's, it's almost sort of 50-50 because there's a storyline with him and Doc Brown that's almost all science fiction. And there's a storyline with him and his dad and his mom, which is almost an all um, coming-of-age story, you know obviously with the, the thread of the, the time problem within it. But uh, that's one of the things I loved about it. And it was the 80s, was really where the idea of cross. Genre or cross pollination of genres kind of came in because you have all these film students who were coming out of having studied genre for the first time. It's like the 60s and 70s and 80s, these filmmakers were going to film school for the first time. So they're the only ones that ever had the conversation about what genres are, what what elements codify them, right? The generation before them was the ones that were actually inventing them, right? Your John Fords, they were building genres, they weren't defining them, they were just making them. And then and, the generation and,
0: after. And then also, this the film school generation didn't really cross genres too much. Spielberg, Lucas. I mean I mean Lucas did with sci-fi sci-fi action adventure. Um and Indiana Jones was kind of like that serial adventure. But like you know, Taxi Driver, pretty straightforward. Raging Bull, pretty straightforward. Right. A Godfather, pretty straightforward. You, you know, they, they weren't as cross-genreing. They weren't combining genres much in the seventies. Well, I, I think, agree with you. In the eighties, they did. Yeah, Spielberg's interesting because he kind of has a foot in the seventies and the eighties, right? Uh, most yeah. of
1: the other guys you mentioned were were late seventies, right? Your right. Coppolas and your Scorsese's, and those guys are more. Um, sort of uh, traditional in the the shape that they put their story in. Where Spielberg, while he came up in the same era and did some stuff early on that maybe falls directly into a genre, so I think you know Jaws and Duel are pretty clear what those are. Close Encounters, yeah, Close Encounters,
0: E.T. But E.T. is a coming coming of age sci-fi.
1: Yeah, and for sure. And I think it was it was Spielberg's influence both as a as a director but mainly as a producer, uh, working with guys like oh. Robert Zemeckis, Joe Dante big, in a big way. Oh, yeah, Joe Gremlins. Joe Dante a, um, yeah. has a huge love for film but also understands uh, the ways to play in different sandboxes. I mean Gremlins is a perfect example. It's a horror film. It's a Christmas film. It's a coming-of-age film. It's a comedy, right? Uh, yeah. It covers a lot of ground.
0: Goonies. Yeah, I mean Goonies is an yep. adventure coming-of-age comedy. For sure. Uh, as well, it, it, you just don't, I'm trying to think of films in today's world that kind of does that. I mean, they're not a lot of, are there a lot, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but like it's from the studio system, everything's so homogenized right now and it's all based on IP and they are pretty much staying strict to, you yeah, know, for like, sure. a, a, I mean, Avengers and, and Marvel movies have just they're basically action comedies with adventure comedies with some dramatic elements drizzled on top.
1: Yeah. I think all of the adventurous stuff that's being done at sort of the nebulous edges of genres are mostly being done in the independent arena. Um, Horror used to be the independent arena. Um, It has, you know, since the late eighties, I would say become more respectable and become more of a studio thing. Uh, But horror has always been sort of toying around with that stuff. Recently, other genres, like, especially the, I guess you would call it the indie drama world or the indie world has sort of taken on that mantle now, because when you're spending, at least $150 million on a movie, you're not allowed to experiment. The people paying for it won't let you, you know? And the mid-budget movie is gone. So it's only small-budget movies that can have the risk of doing something daring anymore.
0: Right, and yeah, the, the days of the 18 to $20 million Goonies is gone.
1: Yeah, and no, that's unfortunate. Because it's now, the, the $18 million Goonies is now a $40 million season of Stranger Things on television. It's not right. a movie at all.
0: Right, and that's where you can make the, I mean, more money. I mean, in all honesty, you'll make more money on that and that business model than you will, and more creative freedom than yeah, you for,
1: oh, for sure with Weirdly, without. it is shifted now, yeah, that there's more there's more creative freedom in television storytelling than there is in uh, theatrical storytelling to a degree
0: now, um, the Christmas film, uh, which yeah. we we were Christmas film has a lot of tropes in it, uh, and I'd love to talk about it because it's it's a genre I've seen grow exponentially in the in the last four or five years, where I'm seeing because Hallmark. And Mm -hmm. uh, was it Hallmark and Lifetime have their you know they just they're just spitting these things out all day, and now Netflix as well is spitting these things out. A perfect example was the um, Gremlins. Uh, which is, I forget that is a Christmas movie. Arguably, yeah. arguably, Die Hard is the greatest Christmas movie of all time, and we can have that conversation. I did a whole episode on that, but we could talk about that later. Uh, but, the, but the Christmas film is, uh, is a genre that there's they're being made more and more because there is so much more need for all these streaming services to have Christmas films. So yep. what are
1: some of the tropes of a Christmas well, film? I, I think the strongest central trope of any Christmas film is uh, the massive conflict that's going to ruin the holiday. Whatever shape it comes in, that's always the element, right? You never get a movie where it's like a, um, where it's a straightforward drama, where, uh, like, let's say, romantic comedy. I know there's romances in the Christmas films on Hallmark, but there's almost always some enormous hook in the center of it that's going to ruin someone's Christmas, right? It's funny because almost all Christmas movies are actually about how someone's Christmas is going to be ruined. And it's kind of funny because the, the, the goal of the movie then is to just solve how do we not ruin Christmas. And almost every single one, whether it's the Gremlins are ruining
0: Christmas. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
1: Or uh, Tim Allen accidentally murdered Santa Claus on his roof during Christmas. You know, there's always some element where the the holiday itself is at risk, and we have to save it in some way. Whether it's on a small scale, the family, right? Everybody's coming together like in uh, – Home Alone. It's, a home, a home Alone, right? right. Yeah. Or whether it's on a cosmic scale like Santa, the Santa Claus with Tim Allen, there's always some – existential threat to the idea of the holiday of christmas and i think it's it's funny that no matter what genre you put it in whether it's a romantic comedy whether it's supernatural like uh, santa claus or krampus or you know any of them they all seem to fall existentially into that same thing which is like save christmas it's gonna die if this thing happens
0: you know and i always i always i always joke but it's not it's not too far off if you've got a dog saving christmas it's pre-sold i mean you're it's oh, not sure. it's it's if you got a dog saving christmas or or, or better yet of a the litter saving Christmas? Like there's puppies involved? Oh, f- yeah, it just, it's pre-sold. Well, even better. If you want to have a, a kid from a, a,
1: a family whose parents are about to divorce, runs away to save a dog, and then the parents have to
0: get back together in order to save the kid Stop and the it. dog. Stop it. Stop, right? it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. We're just spitting <laughs> out gold here all day, guys. Just, and this is, these are free. Take them and do with them as you wish. Um, and one other genre I wanted to talk about, which is a is a newer genre, the young adult dystopian romance, um, which is it is a two thousands beyond two thousands um, genre. I don't remember seeing. Mu- I've seen dystopian before, but the mm. young adult dystopian is something of the two thousands. Am I wrong? I think in film
1: it is of the yeah. 2000s. Um, it was, I mean, if you you can go back to, the, I think The Giver is probably the most famous example. It was a film that was wrapped up in um, you know production snafus for 25 years before Jeff Bridges finally got it made. But that was a book that came out before the uh, millennium. So I think, yeah, it came about in YA fiction first, you know, young adult fiction, and then became a genre because they started adapting the books. Interestingly, we we sort of owe. Y A dystopian romance in some way to harry potter because harry potter was a ya series that became so successful that everybody just wanted to adapt the next popular ya series because if you can find a franchise and the first one does good money you're set for a few years at least you know and that's when they started rolling in right we got our hunger games and we got our um, i'm trying to remember the one uh about the the the, divergent
0: divergent yeah yeah. that died that died at the the last one they didn't even release
1: (laughs) yeah the maze runner right like um yeah, people were finding uh, and what happens is and, and you the the industry will sort of write which books it wants, right? Because somebody immediately tried to make one that was much closer to Harry Potter, which was the was the one about the uh, the gods, the um
0: Oh yeah, um uh, Percy, uh, Percy Percy yeah, Percy yeah. Jackson Percy Jackson, yep. I, Percy Jackson, I, I, I actually enjoy the Percy Jackson films. And,
1: and there were two of them and they they did fairly well. But in the scheme of things, the, the YA dystopian romance, you know, like the, the self-sufficient girl who has to choose between one of two guys, right? The sexy punk rocker or the, you know, the straight-laced whoever, um, that really connected with broader audiences and also – the um, the big hook about the world, the crazy world that they live in, those really seem to connect with audiences. And so that became a thing. Obviously, I listed the three that I just mentioned. But then there were ones that um, popped up on TV as well. There were TV series that were clearly influenced by it. You'd find yeah. on places like ABC Family. Um, and so, yeah, it became it became its own subgenre to the degree that it, it definitely felt like it belonged in the book.
0: Yeah, it, it it is a it is an interesting genre. I mean, Twilight. Let's not even get into that that debacle. Um, sorry, everybody out there. I'm sorry. I saw Twilight, and I I mean, I, you don't introduce the villain till the last 20 minutes. I'm sorry, you you've lost me. It's just very upsetting. Um, <laughs> you're staying quiet. Do you agree? Do you disagree? No
1: i the, <laughs> I always uh, I always say that there there is an audience for every movie. Fair enough. Just because I'm not it. So to be clear, I'm not it. <laughs> But
0: you're, I, no, no, I, you're a closeted, did. you're a closeted Twilight fan. Let's just admit it here on the show Listen, now. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I've seen all the
1: movies, but to be fair, the reason I watched them is good, because, good as, as a screenwriter, you you have to know what everybody else around you is watching. Sure, so sure,
0: that's the reason. Sure, um, That's the reason.
1: Well, <laughs> I watched one of them because uh because the my one of my favorite directors of all time, David Slade, directed one. Oh yeah, and, he's a great director. Yeah, he's fantastic. I couldn't believe he directed a Twilight film, but turns out he's the smart one because he laughed all the way
0: to the bank, and he has a fantastic career now. So mm-hmm. yeah, he did yeah, it did it did a okay did okay and i think the, the genius of harry potter obviously among many things it's generational you start with the character when he's a when he's what a first grade essentially and then you take him all the way through high school or, or the equivalent of so i mean that was just a money making money printing machine
1: yeah and well and the film smartly learned to mature along with the viewers right because the first ones were much more sort of—I don't want to
0: say cartoonish, but much Goonies, more more go, more, more Goonie esque, like they're going on an adventure, and it's like right. more innocent. Like when you get the Prisoner Azkaban, for, it, yeah. it just gets dark. <laughs> Well,
1: I mean, the smartest thing they ever did was to hire Quaron to take them from childhood to adolescence because he understood how to sort of muddy the waters of the world and make it feel, even though it's fantastical, it still feels all, there's some sort of realism to the the way that he photographed it. You know, so it starts to become higher stakes, and and then in the fourth one, a character actually dies, and we have to see the ramifications of that, and so the film sort of matures, the franchise matures in the way that the people reading them would be maturing or watching them.
0: And uh, fun fact, the guy who dies in uh, Goblet of Fire is now our new Batman. Yep.
1: And he he died in Goblet of Fire, and then he went to be an immortal shiny vampire. A shiny vampire.
0: But to be fair, and I won't get onto this too much, I think, I don't know, he's a fantastic actor. He's actually got a bum rap because of the Twilight films. But he's Mm -hmm. actually a really, it'll it'll be interesting. I'm interested to see where this goes. Every time they've ever cast a Batman or a Joker, they always crap all over it. People, all the fanboys come out and just like, this is horrible. And then, yeah.
1: That is how fandom works, right? People get <laughs> mad about stuff. It just seems like a weird, you know, a
0: weird moniker, but it did come from the word fanatic, so I guess it does make sense to a degree. I mean, I, I mean, you and I are both of similar vintages, so you remember when Michael Keaton was cast. I mean, oh uh, my yeah.
1: god, yeah, the I mean, comedy guy from Beetlejuice,
0: really, Mr. Yeah. Mom, Mr. Mom is gonna be yeah. Batman, and now they're yeah. talking about bringing him back to play the old like uh, like an older Dark Knight kind of Batman. Wouldn't that be fingers, amazing? Fingers crossed. I would want a it, Batman Beyond for sure. Oh, God, that would be amazing. Um, all right, so I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all of my guests. Sir. Sure. What advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today? Um,
1: I would say, A, you're lucky that you decided to be a screenwriter instead of any other job because it's the only one you can do from almost anywhere. Um, so good choice on that. And essentially would, free, and
0: essentially f- almost free to do it. It doesn't cost yeah, a whole it, lot. It,
1: Oh, for sure. It's one of the only ones that doesn't have any overhead for you to have to, to do your to ply your trade. You know, yes. uh, if you became a drummer instead of a guitarist, that would be a bad idea for investment purposes. I think writers are the same way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my my advice would be, uh, well, by this book, Obviously. but um, no, um, my real advice would be you have to you a you have to watch a lot of stuff, but you have to you have to actively watch is uh, it's the thing that most people don't do when they watch something. They watch something and they're entertained by it and then they emulate the things that they like or, or – but they don't, they don't dig further into what it is that they like to understand what that thing did in order to be effective that made you like it. Um, you have to be able to watch actively and that's one of the reasons why even though I don't tell people to go to film school, I don't tell people necessarily to take screenwriting courses, I do tell them read books that can teach you how to do what I'm talking about and it can be in any way. You can learn how to do analysis – from reading books about literature and things like that. But learning how to do analysis of a film is super important for writers because you have to, you have to be able to create a thing that will capture the spirit of a movie in the heads of every single person who wants to make the movie, but hasn't made it yet. And that is a very difficult task. So you have to understand how to be able to push all the buttons in someone's brain so that they get a sense of the movie in their head and that it excites them enough that they want to go and make it. So learning how to do the the deep dive on a film, watch something, enjoy it the first time, but when you watch it the second, the third time, watch it with an eye towards how is this film doing what it does, not just I like this film. And that's not always a tough thing to do to separate yourself
0: like that. Wouldn't you agree, though, that it is tougher than ever to be a writer in the sense that we as an audience are so much more savvy, so much more educated in what story is, like things that I saw in the 80s you know when Bloodsport came out, Bloodsport was the greatest action film ever made. Right. Um, for my time and my age. Uh, but now you know there's you got another thirty years of just story, 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 and now kids coming up are literally got every film ever made, every TV show ever made on at the at the tip of their, of their fingers. So as a writer, you've got to be so much better and so much sharper. Uh, To tell a compelling story that people will not just go, oh, I've seen this a thousand times. For sure. Uh, But I will
1: also say that all of those – let's say when we're talking about the movie from the 80s, right? We're talking about an action film. Everybody watching it wasn't exposed to the entirety of the uh, action canon that we've seen. Mm -hmm. But neither were the people writing it, right? Right. So the idea is that writers have the same responsibility now that they did then, which is to know what's already happened and how you can move it further down, right? How, How you can take it in the next step. The thing I love about Ryan Johnson is that he's really good at that. He understands where – he doesn't just write stories. He understands where the framework for the story and the understanding of the story exists in society now so that he can use that to further what it is that he's getting at with his story. We'll be right
0: back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I mean they were doing the same thing with the
1: the film uh the well, I guess you would call them the, what the film brats right from the 80s uh, Spielberg and all of them they were making their homages to 50s films in the 80s right that's what star wars is that's what um um indiana jones is but they were they were taking that and then they were turning it into something that would come out from the 80s and you just you have to be able to do the same thing now yes it's more work certainly but in a way I think in some in some ways it feels more rewarding because when you think about Oh, no one knew anything in the 80s going into a movie right so i can impress them pretty easily if you can impress them now it means you're pretty good
0: yeah yeah i mean it, exactly and if you if you're if you're really good now you would have killed in
1: the 80s <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Or you would have been so ahead of your time that no one got you. I mean, I, that happened to John Carpenter more times than I can count. Everybody yeah. thinks that The Thing is a classic now. It bombed when it came oh, out. Oh, it's was horrible. You know? yeah. yeah, it so bombed. It's, it's bombed that, that delicate balance, right? And yeah, it, exactly.
0: You don't want to be too ahead of your time.
1: Yeah. Um, it doesn't do him any good now that, that it's a classic because he still didn't make any money off of it, you know? <laughs>
0: right. But he's not bitter at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's not bitter at all. Um, now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life?
1: Um, the (laughs) this is going to sound crazy for a writer. Uh, don't be uh, taken in by the tyranny of story. And I've, I've watched this happen in the, um, in the fan community, which is the demand that everything in a story be answered. Um, it's the death of storytelling in some ways for there not to be able to be question marks at the end of a story. Everybody wants everything answered. And that in some ways kills the interest that you could like, um, the best example I can use is, um, the best way to explain it is to say, When something isn't answered in a film, it doesn't mean it's unanswerable. It just means it wasn't answered, right? And that sense of mystery needs to exist to some degree for people to want to revisit something. If I can watch a movie and then by the end, everything has been handed to me in a neat package and there's nothing for me to pour over, why would I bother revisiting that? And uh, the thing that that made me realize that was actually sort of watching the career of David Lynch and as it sort of culminated in Twin Peaks The Return. That show so brilliantly – gave people answers that only revealed more questions that they thought they wanted um, answers to. And, and what was powerful about that is he did answer questions that he started asking in the late eighties with uh, the TV series. But more importantly, He had a conversation, he gave you an emotional experience, and he asked you a few more questions. And at the end of the day, that is what art should be doing, right? So don't feel so paralyzed by the need to answer every question about your story that you lose the emotional impact that's going to make it powerful and that sense of mystery or ambiguity that allows that thing to keep its life and vitality past the point that someone's even seen it once.
0: Yeah, when you said uh, unanswered questions, I just – the first one that popped in my head was Inception. You know, the, mm. the, 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 the ending, you just like waiting and waiting and he cuts him like, yeah. oh, oh, thank
1: God,
0: it was so good.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then forever, even if people think they have theories about what the movie actually means, because of that ending image, it will always be discussed, right? Mm-hmm. If we've been given the answer, fine, that would have been satisfying in the moment, maybe but ultimately would that have been the best decision for the life of the film past the first time that you've ever seen it and when the next generation of film gets to of filmmakers gets to watch it or critics get to write about it you know that's where it's fun is where there are holes left for us to participate in that
0: and and, so. and kubrick was pretty much the master of that in, oh, God, uh, for sure. In every single one of his films. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, 2001 is it in microcosm, you know, that's
1: – but almost every one of his films leaves that beautiful ambiguity in some way for you to be able to have – to be in concert and in conversation with the movie.
0: Yeah, and um, not to not to jump on, on Kubrick, but like every time – his films are so – and his stories, because he was the writer for most of those, he was either the co-writer or the writer of the screenplay as well or adapted from a, a, a novel – Uh, they age like all art does. So like good art will mean different things to you at different points in your life. So I still remember watching eyes wide shut in 99 when it came out and my friends came out, we came, I was a film geek and my friends like, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know. I don't understand it, but I probably will in 10 years. And, and then, you know, once I was married and had kids and I watched it, I was like, Oh, okay. I kind of get what you're getting. And then in about another 10 or 15 years, I'll watch it again and go, Okay, Stanley, now I get what you were trying. (laughs) It's like great art does that. Great stories do that. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think 2001
1: doesn't really hit home for anybody until they've either had a massive loss in their life or they've had a child. The idea of the cycle of human life doesn't mean as much to you in its profundity in that film until you've witnessed one end or the other of it.
0: Yeah, it's uh, – and we could I, – I should do a whole episode on just Kubrick. I haven't never done that. I'm just such a Kubrick no. fan. Let me know because uh, Steven Espinosa, my
1: co-writer, would love to join you for that. It's his favorite film of uh, filmmaker of all time.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean I, 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 I've gone deep down the rabbit hole on Kubrick uh, more times than I care to admit. Um, now, three of your favorite films of all time. Okay, so my three favorite films. Uh, it's
1: funny. Anytime somebody asks me to come on to do a, an appearance on a podcast, if they're discussing movies, they'll say, "What movies do you want to talk about?" And the first thing, the first three movies I ask him if they've covered because they're my three favorite movies are *Magnolia* by Paul Thomas Anderson, sure. *The Documentary American Movie*, great, and and this is the this is the one that always throws people a little bit. The other two are like, okay, I get that. There is a um, a small Canadian horror film directed by Bruce McDonald called *Pontypool* from 2008. And that is my third favorite film. Uh, Many people have not seen it. Those who have don't understand my love uh, of it. But I think any great enterprising independent filmmaker who watches that movie will be deeply inspired because it is a film that costs, I think, right around a million dollars maybe. It basically takes place inside of a radio station in a basement in a tiny church in the middle of uh, Canada. But it is one of the most beautifully shot films. It does so much with the budget that it has. And it's just endlessly clever. One of the things I always say as a writer is – Uh, ideas are the only thing that you can continuously produce for free in a film. Everything else costs money. And that movie had great ideas, crazy ideas in spades. And that's one of the things I always point out, like especially young filmmakers who are trying to put a film together and they got almost no money to scrape together. I say, well, you know, the idea is where it's at, right? That's the thing that's free. Find the thing that's going to get people talking. Usually it's in the idea phase. That doesn't cost you anything.
0: Now, where can people find the book and, uh, and pick it up? So,, uh, it will be
1: available to like it'll be shipped to you on march twenty fourth It's already available for pre-order mm-hmm. uh, and you can either get it from the publisher's website, Lawrence King, um which in fact, if anybody wants to see what the book looks like, if you go to Lawrence King, I believe there's an entire genre available that you can flip through on the pages there. So you can see the style. Um, I want to say it's the Western Revenge film. I can't remember for sure, but I mm-hmm. think that's the one. So you can go and you can get the tone and, you know, and get a sense of, of whether you'd like it or not. But you can pick it up from the Lawrence King website and get it from Amazon.com. And then once the actual street date hits, you'll also be able to get it at um, brick and mortar stores if if any of those still exist. Uh, you'll still be able to pick them up there.
0: <laughs> I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's It's been an absolute ball geeking out with you about genre and and about the uh, different kinds of plots and, and the tropes that we have to avoid. So thank you so much for being on the show, brother. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I want to thank Chris again for coming on the show and just turning a spotlight on genre cliches and how we can avoid them. So thank you so much, Chris. If you want to get a link to the book or anything else we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmWaddle.com forward slash 651. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.